Some birds flock, some insects swarm, some fish swim in schools. That is, they congregate in huge groups that move together. These are examples of collective behavior. Swarm behavior is the collective motion of a large number of autonomous agents, which need not be biological. Swarm robotics is thus when these principles are applied to robots using machine learning to behave collectively yet autonomously. We considered lethal autonomous weapon systems in the previous episode. In this one, we consider one subset of such weapons, and that is swarms. My guest today is Zachary Callenborn, and I'll let him introduce himself since he has too many titles for me to remember. A little bit excessive number of titles, but I'm a policy fellow at uh, George Mason University, a research affiliate at the University of Maryland, the Start Research Center. I'm a fellow at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Um, I'm also an officially proclaimed U.S. Army Med Scientist, which is probably my favorite one. And then I do also consulting on the side. Looking forward to this discussion. I'll add one more accolade that Zach can boast with. A Netflix star. The documentary called The Unknown. Killer Robots will air on Netflix, and Zach is one of the participants in that documentary. Here is the 11th episode of the Diplomacy Light podcast on swarming autonomous weapon systems with Zachary Callenborn. Well, Zach, uh, welcome to the Diplomacy Light podcast. Uh, it's really great to have you here. Uh, when uh, you and I met, uh, I was I was chairing the GG on Laws, the group of governmental experts on, on lethal autonomous weapon systems, um, and you had approached me with a concern, and this concern was exactly the topic of our conversation today, swarms. So perhaps by the end of this conversation, I would love to hear how your thinking on this has evolved uh, since the, the, the first time we were in contact. But let's start really with the beginnings, because a lot of our listeners and viewers uh, are not um, diplomats, so not necessarily uh, know what exactly a swarm swarming autonomous weapon system is. So let's start with that. What is a swarming autonomous weapon system? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when people hear drone swarm, they kind of start thinking about, you know, like science fiction, like something on a Star Trek, you know, thousands of drones kind of flying around and just blowing everything up in some fanciful fashion. Um, but the reality is swarms are relatively simple. Like a drone swarm really is just a system where the drones communicate and collaborate with one another to accomplish a shared objective. Um, and that's really all it, all it is when it comes down to it. Um, that isn't necessarily all that complicated. You know, we may just have a bunch of simple aerial drones that are, say, coordinating a search over an area. Not super complicated. But at the higher end, you might even have some of those sci-fi-like capabilities. India, for example, is interested in building swarms of potentially up to a thousand drones that all operate autonomously and have that communication and collaboration. What's more, those swarms may even operate across multiple domains at once. You know, the Naval Postgraduate School, for example, is again, okay, what happens if you build hundreds of thousands, if not millions of drones operating in air on the surface and even undersea, all interacting together at once? And the unfortunate reality is this technology is here now. Back in uh, May 2021, Israel actually became the first uh, country in the world to use an actual drone swarm in combat. Relatively simple, just a couple dozen or so drones that searched out and relayed information about the location of Gazan terrorists to, you know, fight, take uh, orders from uh, other military folks who attacked them. So it wasn't a lethal autonomous weapon here, but it was, in fact, a swarm. 
And this is the interesting thing about it that you mentioned that, you know, the different domains, I think that for many people, and especially, you know, uh, people have seen now uh, during New Year's celebrations or different kind of events, they see a swarm of drones, you know, creating a, a some kind of an image, et cetera. So the, the image is now there, perhaps a few years ago, if we we're talking about this, but I think that still for most, the image is of an aerial uh, drone. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, they can be used on water, on surface, on on air, uh, 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 underwater, in space, even. So, yeah, what are the possible uses that uh, that that you've seen and, and even that have been deployed? Yeah. So I'm going to nitpick a little bit. So those drone light shows are not actually true swarms. Um, in those cases, it's actually just pre-programmed GPS routes to like follow those particular things. But it's a fantastic illustration, I think, of, you know, where that technology uh, is headed. You know, you see those 3000 drones like flying and forming dragons and spaceships and all sorts of things. And it's pretty easy to imagine, well, what if they all had bombs and guns on them? Um, but in terms of sort of the uses, yeah, absolutely. You have drones potentially operating um, across every domain. In fact, um, I just heard, heard recently about a recent DARPA project in the United States that's looking at swarms of swarms across multiple domains, spreading out uh, potentially like in, in an entire country um, to attack various, count, uh, or to counter various anti-access uh, aerial denial type uh, weapons, air defenses, that type of thing. Um, the reality, though, is that like some of the potential uses are extremely broad uh, for these uh, systems um, because it's sort of like drones. You, know, you can kind of apply to a drone to pretty much anything that you want. You put a bomb on it, put a jammer on it, use it to go search out targets, use it as the Islamic State use drones to sort of collect propaganda, send them out through the ocean like various cartels do to smuggle uh, smuggle uh, material. Similarly, with a swarm, you just have this scaling of that capability. Um, and particularly in this case, what, you, what you're offering is that ability to sort of search over broad areas. You can have different types of um, weapons complexity, where, for example, you may have some drones that are equipped with chemical weapons to force a target into protective gear that's going to inhibit their movement, um, then follow up with conventional attacks, which will then be more effective. So theoretically, you can use it for a broad array of purposes. Um, some of the ones that are potentially concerning, or not potentially concerning, are quite concerning, are um, looking at attacks on anti-personnel uh, type uh, attacks, as well as generally use of autonomy, of course, because we uh, to select and engage targets. Because of course, we know as activists have, I think, rightly been pointing out for years that there's a lot of brittleness um, when it comes to some of these machine vision systems in particular, where even a single pixel change can cause the system to be, believe that you know a stealth bomber is actually a dog. So you know what happens if you have a thousand of those drones that all have that same brittleness, and not only are they you know have that individual potential to create concern, but what happens if they're communicating and sharing that information, where a single mistake may say propagate throughout the entire swarm, where instead of one drone makes a mistake, you know you potentially have collective errors with all thousand or ten thousand or hundred thousand of those drones all potentially making an error that's potentially quite concerning thanks for making the distinction between the 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 the, the drones that are making the different kind of light shows and etc uh which are the old way of programming things right like you program this to do that and they they're they go into this position mm -hmm. in that position and i think that a good image for uh, us to understand what exactly we're talking about is really 
kind of schools of fish uh, or flocks of birds or or ants even you know uh, leaving uh, and, and these are good examples of the different ways that they can um, coordinate right like I mean there's the possibility of kind of direct signaling we have like a basketball player kind of you know yelling I got the rebound right like something mm -hmm. like something like that or and then everybody kind of backs off you know the others know you know the forward or the center is getting the rebound um, there's kind of co-observation where there is that kind of uh, possibility of seeing what others on the same side and perhaps uh, of, of the of the adversaries are doing. The possibility as well of of really changing the environment, right? Like, what are other ways, and is there some that are more suitable for certain domains and others for other domains, or how is this developing over the years? Yeah, so that's something you know states are still trying to figure out because it's a relatively nascent technology. You know, which of these. Uh, swarms are sort of more effective versus le less effective, I think is uh, an open question. Like, I think in some cases, if we say talk about like legit, like swarms for say like logistics, um, you know, I don't really see all that much value in the actual swarming itself. Um, like, okay, you could deliver pizzas everywhere, but like, I guess that can be useful, but like you can do that relatively easily with just, you know, man craft. Um, you know, the advantage, I guess, is that like you can do it in more um, difficult to access territory. But Point being, I don't see a huge advantage. But more broadly, I think there's quite a few domains where swarms could be um, incredibly significant. Um, one of the ones that I find uh, somewhat worrying is um, particularly in anti-submarine warfare. You know, at least in the United States, much of the second strike nuclear deterrence, you know, the survivable nuclear forces to prevent sort of a bolt from the blue de decapitation type strike um, are heavily based on submarines and the notion that your submarine is going to hide in the massive vastness of the ocean. Um, so any ability to sort of increase that ocean transparency can potentially be quite destabilizing. Um, and so that's a potentially scary application of swarms where I think the technology would be uh, quite effective, where you sort of have massive swarms of drones sort of swimming throughout the ocean, uh, deploying and analyzing various sensor data using um, artificial intelligence to either like search um, for potential these submarines or even using artificial intelligence sort of process what is undoubtedly like a huge mass of data that's going to come through that try to find like you know subtle signals of like okay a submarine is over there that type of thing um and so I, although i'm skeptical that we would actually get like truly like visible oceans where like you know we can see every submarine at every moment at any kind of time like i, I think that's sort of silly but you know even if you have a real uh, significant increase in the likelihood of being able to find and detect that, those submarines, that's potentially um, quite concerning. Um, now there's some also some nuance there where you know swarms are a little bit more difficult to operate um, under the ocean because the you know the ocean doesn't propagate electromagnetic signals as well, so um, the communication between the drones is a little bit harder. Folks are finding ways around that using like GPS buoys that type of thing, um, but. Point being, like, I think that's an application where uh, there's potentially some really broad um, strategic effects. Um, the other couple of the other domains that I think are uh, kind of concerning as well are sort of using drone swarms as a weapon of terror, both by sort of authoritarian regimes as well as by terrorist actors. Um, for an authoritarian regime, one can imagine pretty easily how a swarm could be uh, very effective, even if it is sort of has these brittleness and makes these uh, makes these mistakes. We know, for example, you know, Saddam Hussein, for part of his rationale in having uh, chemical weapons was a way to sort of intimidate the Kurdish minority population, as well as sort of intimidate Iran to you know, prevent going back to some of the earlier wars. One can imagine how a swarm might be quite useful in that uh, sort of context, you know, the 
authoritarian regime makes a threat to uh, spread a swarm everywhere that is able to um, look at ethnic indicators, like physical indicators that suggest one belongs to a particular group, even if it can't actually do that all that well, um, you know, folks don't actually necessarily know that. So there's sort of that claim and that fear that comes around with it. Um, and one can imagine sort of, you know, okay, let's release this swarm of a thousand drones into like, you know, a city and we're going to search and identify these targets. Um, and even if it doesn't work terribly well, um, it may be effective as sort of a way to sort of intimidate that population. Um, likewise, I think, you know, it's pretty concerning how, how might terrorists use these systems. Um, from like a countermeasure standpoint, one of the challenges that you get with swarms is that it dealing with a large number of drones. Like most of the counter drone systems on the market are not equipped to handle multiple drones at once. Um, in fact, some of them, they, they, they literally cannot detect multiple drones um, at the same time. So for a terrorist, what that means is that like you can potentially overwhelm some of these defenses. Um, and depending on the target, even if you shoot down, or if 19 of your drones get shot down, but one actually makes it through, that could be quite significant. You know, imagine an attack on a world leader, for example, um, where, you know, you just bombard, the terrorist just sort of bombards that world leader with a whole bunch of drones. Um, if even a single one gets through and manages to kill the, you know, president or prime minister or wherever, that's a, you know, world changing event potentially. Um, so I think some of the, those are some of the domains that I think are particularly concerning. Uh, Can you uh, deconstruct for us some of the different models of command and control uh, that are used? Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things about swarms is that like there are different sort of ways to um, go about like how you actually control the swarm. Um, no, I'm not, I should caveat that I'm not super versed on like the actual technical details. So I'm gonna be talking a little bit more of like sort of a higher level. Um, but you know, the challenge is like, okay, we have a thousand drones. Like how do you actually manage and maneuver like all of that? And the reality is you know, like a human being, when you have so many drones, you can't do that right because you just have way too many that you can't monitor the thousand feeds you can't make a thousand decisions of what exactly is going on so some of the ways that they do that is sort of design it within the programming and so there are different particular uh command and control structures that you end up um getting in so you may have for example a single drone like a main drone that say um propagates information to a number of subordinate drones say okay you guys go over here you guys go over here you do this you do that that type of thing so there's sort of a sort of leader follower type structure and you may have that at like multiple levels right so you may have like one drone one sort of leader drone that gives very that takes the very high level sort of command and control like our mission is to go over here and blow up tanks or whatever um and then it propagates that to another subordinate leader who then says okay we're going to go over to this narrow area and we're going to blow up tanks over here who then propagates that command to sort of the smaller drones that are actually like looking like say actually looking for those tanks and saying, hey, look, there's a tank or, you know, let's go blow up that tank, that type of thing. Um, so that's one way of approaching it. Um, there are also more, and I think some of the more interesting models are more decentralized where uh, essentially all the drones are sort of communicating together or at least sort of like sharing information into sort of like a collective intelligence um, that sort of emerges throughout it. It's not a, super clear to me where like the actual like processing of that, because presumably you need like some sort of computer that's and a, probably a pretty powerful one to analyze and process that information. Now, that might be some sort of like still sort of leader drone, but that's not like providing commands, but sort of serving as like a central hub to do the analysis and sort of process some of this information, that type of thing. Um, so that's one way that you can communicate as well. Um, there are also some work looking at uh, just really simple rules. 
Um, so if we talk about like you mentioned like some of the animal structures like uh, like the starlings or like schools of fish that type of thing the way that some of those uh, swarms work is that um, the, each of those like birds or those fish they often rely on really simple rules where say like okay I need to make sure that I'm within like a foot or whatever of two other birds at any given moment and so as long as like I stay within those other birds then we can and all those other birds are following that same rule of okay let's I need to stay within X distance from all these other um, birds, then you can get that sort of massive collective formulation uh, formulation where they're all sort of going together because they're all, you know, following that rule like, okay, we need to stay close together. So if they're all staying close together, they get that collective form. Um, so it's entirely plausible to imagine uh, that happening for drone swarm. There has been some work um, on that. So uh, Harvard's uh, kilobot swarm, which is like a, a thousand twenty eight, I think drones um and they're these little tiny like ground drones probably i think they're about yay big um and they spread across like a, a laboratory table and they form little shapes like i think it like spells out the word like kilo or like makes letters and that sort of thing um in that case those are following that those type of just simple rules of like okay just stay close together and as long as we stay close together you know we can form that big pattern um how exactly that works that's, in a i mean that's very similar to this big concern that Stuart Russell had with uh, this initial kind of a few years ago, the fast, lightweight autonomy uh, that spawned the, the video, the first video that was given um, uh, and that reached a lot of viewers, scared a lot of people of, of what's there. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, like the Slaughterbots video, that type of thing? Yeah. Um, essentially, yeah. Um, that certainly is one scenario where you sort of have a bunch of, I don't recall in that particular case, like what the sort of command and control structures um, were, uh, but certainly that's a potential case where, you know, each of these drones are outfitted with some sort of like facial recognition to identify particular targets. Um, you know, of course that show, uh, the video is a little bit sensationalized, right? Like, you know, it's plausible that terrorists could have that level of capability. And I think, you know, terrorist use of swarms is very concerning, um, but that's, you know, a, a very far one where, you know, terrorists can get facial recognition, they can do all these autonomous things. For a state though, I think that's an entirely plausible thing. Um, the challenge of course, you know, there is you get the, the facial recognition challenge of like, okay, you also need a whole bunch of training data to do that. So it'll work well if you're trying to assassinate a bunch of like political figures um, whose, you know, face and likeness are everywhere, or maybe someone like me, because I do a bunch of podcasts. So, you know, maybe this will be in some future terrorist uh, training data to blow me up for whatever reason. Um, so, you know, there'll be difficulties there, but like, you know, recognizing, is this a human and blow a target up autonomously? Oh, no, that's absolutely uh, doable. And, you know, certainly well within um, state uh, capabilities. This is uh, hints at one of the things that I think that we did well in the GG, and that is the addressing the legality of it. So there is uh, Article 36 of additional protocol, uh, the Geneva Conventions. Uh, that mandates all um, uh, contracting parties to be to conduct a, a review of new weapons or acquired weapons of their legality. Now, some countries are not party to it, but still do them uh, nonetheless. The, the, the difficulty with any swarm is that basically you have a new weapon every time, right? Like, so if you have a training session, even a virtual one, you don't have the same weapon as you did in the beginning of that session. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I think absolutely, because um, that, that problem is that error um, and how this sort of behavior interacts with like actual reality. So like if like in that case of like the kilobot swarm where you have that simple rules, the reality is in a military context, you can't have such simple rules, right? Like the battlefield is constantly changing. You know, you're going to have 
fire, fog, it might be rainy, cloudy, you know, there'll be trees, there'll be buildings, there'll be cars, there'll be school buses, there'll be, you know, myriad of other things. And there's going to be constant variations. Yeah. The, like, to what extent, like the training is actually going to be relevant or like to testing, I should say, um, is going to be relevant. That's a really open question um, because the reality is the battlefield is so complex. And with swarms, the big concern that you have is that there's so many potential avenues for error. Because not only, again, you, you have those, the individual autonomous error of like, okay, I'm going to misrecognize something, but you have that collective error of how that swarm operates together um, and how does it share information how does it work together as a unit that makes you know test doing that testing and being sure that like is this going to do what i want it to do um a real open question within again the 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 conversation that we had in geneva and that is still going on uh obviously the gg on laws it happens within a uh framework which is an international humanitarian law framework so within that normative legal framework there are principles and and they are really tools to help uh, us address some of the, the possibilities of illegality, you know, um, distinction, proportionality, precautions in attack, and especially the first two, distinction and pro proportionality. There are those who say, you know, autonomous weapons in general, uh, and, and let's see if this also is the case for uh, swarming uh, autonomous weapons, but that um, the potential is there for autonomous weapons to be better at recognizing who are combatants and who are not combatants and to really just address combatants so making that distinction um is that is it do you think it is possible to go into that direction where even an autonomous weapon specifically warm, uh, swarms uh can better distinguish between combatants and non-combatants can better make decisions on the on the battlefield and can better uh implement those principles of distinctions of proportionality of precautions in attack I think it's theoretically possible. Um, that said, you know, I tend to be one of the types of folks that I, I find it hard to say, like, okay, something is not theoretically possible ever, especially when it comes to technology, because technology has, you know, been evolving over the past so many years that, like, yeah, sure, it's theoretically possible. Um, but I think when it comes down to the sort of those, uh, like, making machines more ethically ethical, in the short term, at least, or I suppose medium to foreseeable future, I guess, um, I think the problem is that sort of muddles a little bit of a distinction that like folks are talking about like slightly different things. Like, I think it is accurate to say that artificial intelligence can improve targeting and can make ensure that like the bullet or the bomb hits the target that it is designed to do. And in that way, I think it is good for a humanitarian perspective. So there was a case recently in um, Iran where uh, Israel allegedly used a artificial intelligence powered uh, sniper rifle, or I think it was technically it was a machine gun to um, assassinate a Iranian nuclear scientist. And they did so while the guy was like in his car driving around a mountain range, sitting right next to his wife that was like six inches away. And they killed the guy without having any harm whatsoever to his wife, who was like six inches away. And I think part of the why that worked is because they were using that artificial intelligence to approve the targeting and very precisely hit exactly who they want. But that, uh, that engagement aspect is, I think, different than the targeting aspect and that whether the autonomous system can decide that is that, you know, that nuclear scientist. Now, in that case, you know, I'm sure they were using like facial recognition or something where they actually have tons of data to train it for that particular guy. But, you know, as a general speaking, like you're not generally speaking, you're not going to have that. And so I think that sort of separating that targeting versus the engagement aspect, I think resolves much of that debate where I think both folks are 
have a point there. Um, and that, yes, the uh, engagement might actually improve, but you don't need to give a, autonomous control in order to get that benefit of engagement, right? Um, you know, it may be a human saying, okay, kill that person, blow that thing up. And just the AI is making sure that like, okay, yes, it's absolutely that thing that you said we should blow up. Um, so I think that way. Um, I think there are some plausible arguments, you know, the like, okay, machines aren't emotional and they can, they can, they don't have to take the same risks. You know, there, I think there's some aspect to it. Um, but I think the problem is like, it's the, the risks and the brittleness, at least at the moment are so high that it ends up sort of weighing those out. Um, especially cause you know, in a military context, like ultimately you, there's only so much risk a system can take as the systems become fancier and they become more exquisite. Like you don't want to waste uh, the massive million dollar, $10 million system that you just built. Like you're going to protect that. Like you're trying to accomplish a military objective. Um, and in some ways, some, some of the things we've seen is that actually with uh, drones, they can actually take more risks and that's how militaries are using them are actually using them in riskier fashions rather than less risky fashions. Um, we've seen that, for example, because drones are generally considered less escalatory, states have been more willing to sort of use them in conflict um, because they're less concerned if this thing gets chopped down or blown up. It's, there's no person there. So it's not going to have the same like escalatory spiral effects on the conflict. Um, so they're more willing to use them. So I, I don't buy some of the arguments about um, even in the long term, autonomous weapons being more ethical. I suppose if you get over the brittleness, um, like there may be some potential for that. Um, and I think that's sort of a, a key larger question. These larger debates about autonomous weapons is, you know, can we get over this brittleness both for autonomous weapons and of course, you know, the extra brittleness from swarms. Now that you've mentioned the term a few times, I have to ask you for uh, a clarification. There's a lot of non-English speakers. Um, can you, uh, because I think it's a very important concept in, in, in artificial in intelligence in general, the, the idea of brittleness, um, uh, that the machine learning is brittle, that it can really focus on a very narrow area. But can you uh, give us a, a little bit more insight into both the concept of brittleness uh, and how it applies into autonomous weapon systems, swarming autonomous weapons? Yeah, so your idea of brittleness is basically that the system is really can make errors relatively easily. So, you know, the way some of these artificial intelligence work, at least at the moment, um, with some of those machine learning and like deep neural networks, that type of thing, is that it's using large amounts of training data to recognize one object uh, from another. Like a machine doesn't have any intuitive sense at all of say, what's the difference between like an apple and a tomato? It only knows that distinction because it gets fed, you know, potentially millions of images of that apple or the tomato that says this is an apple this is a tomato that sort of thing so the brittleness and sort of that breakability is sort of the idea that you know the machine doesn't know anything outside of what it's been trained on which creates sensitive a lot of sensitivity to error so my favorite example um open ai which is one of the leading uh, companies that do artificial intelligence research um they trained a machine vision system to detect um, i don't remember just general objects and so they showed it a picture of an apple and the machine vision said, okay, with I'm 99% certain this is an apple. Like that's pretty straightforward. But then the researchers put just a sticky note on it that said iPad. And then the same system concluded with like 89% certainty that this is not an apple. This is an iPad. Though like any human being looking at it would be like, that's very obviously an apple with a sticker on it, right? Um, so that's the idea of brittleness, that these systems are so easy to fool um, and so easy to make these types of mistakes. 
Um, and in the context of a battlefield, that becomes much, much more difficult, you know, because you have so much complexity there. Uh, vehicles, material, people moving in and out of the battlefield. You may have rain, you may have fog, you may have weather conditions, you may have uh, buildings, trees, kids running around, school buses, you know, advertisement, big billboards everywhere, mountains, hills, you know, you can imagine myriad of different things that could sort of create challenges for that brittleness. Um, and so the challenge is like, and the question is how those autonomous weapon systems operate in those fields. Um, we know, for example, there's been studies that looked at like partial obscurity. So like, you know, if you have say fog partially covering up a tank, how does that machine vision interpret that? And some studies have shown that like, okay, unsurprisingly, the ability to correctly classify an object drops quite significantly as soon as you have like partial obscurity um you know if uh if you don't see that cannon on the tank well what do you inter what does the machine vision interpret that um and how does that make mistakes and again you know when, when we talk about swarms you escalate that to thousandfold because then you have thousand drones potentially doing that and it's more depending on how the swarm uh fits up you know you have potential brittleness coming from like the different drones operating together where even if they may be operating accurately, you may still get potential error, right? So you can imagine how if different drones are sort of feeding different pieces of information about what's going on, and then they're coming to a collective conclusion about, okay, this is a tank, you could create potentially big problems. You know, there's the classic anecdote of the, of the three blind men and the elephant, where, you know, the three blind men are touching different parts of an elephant, and they're asked, you know, what is this? Well, they're supposed to describe it. So one guy is like, you know, touching the trunk is like, hmm, this is kind of like a snake-like figure, long and thin. Another person is, you know, touching the legs, like, no, it's, you know, it's big, and it's round and it's thick it's like a tree type thing and another is touching the ears like no it's flat and you know because they they don't have that common sense of what the picture is and so you can imagine how that might operate in sort of a swarm context where they see okay this particular object actually let's think about like how they might interpret an elephant okay there's this long thing that's coming out of it well that's maybe that's a tank cannon i don't know for sure but you know maybe that trunk is really a cannon well you know it's big and we see this big bulkiness well tanks are big and bulky um and i'm a machine i'm a machine i don't i've never seen an elephant before so i might conclude that you know that elephant maybe that's really a tank um by looking at sort of the different parts so you can easily imagine how you get all sorts of collective error um from the uh, from that behavior Let's move to another very important uh, aspect of swarms um, and the, the high possibility there of those kinds of collective errors, and that is the speed. It's an attractive uh, aspect uh, of swarms, the, the, the speed of decision-making, uh, obviously. At the same time, militaries like command and control. They don't like to lose control. Uh, generals from several countries have said that, you know, uh, in, in regards to swarming autonomous weapons, that once you release it, once you kind of put it into fully autonomous mode, it's really not possible for a human to intervene uh, within that. Uh, uh, the only possibility is a kill switch, perhaps, but, you know, anything really saying you know, to modify it, uh, it, things happen too too quickly. Is this speed um, a positive factor uh, or, I mean, can it be tamed? Let me put it that way. <laughs> can <laughs> yeah, you get the positive things on it without dangers of it? Yeah, um, honestly, I, I don't know. I think that's sort of an open critical question. And you're right. And that's a good point that sort of there is that sort of speed aspect of it. Because like you're not only getting the mis mistakes, but they may happen like faster than one could possibly um, do anything about it, even if one actually can. Um, I mean, I think in reality, there probably are ways um, that you can sort of tame that because 
you know, a swarm is not necessarily um, entirely autonomous. And so there may be ways that like you designate certain types of decisions that they can sort of operate at that speed while you have sort of others that humans are making that are, um, I don't want to say less critical, but like where ones you can sort of um, do that. Um, but the problem is like how that works in practice, I think is potentially going to be really, really tough just because of like the sheer amount. So like, okay, let's say like, you know, the swarm is fully autonomous except for targeting and fighting decisions. Like, okay, blow this target up. That part still has a human control. And so it's not technically autonomous weapon. Um, like, even if you have that sort of breakdown, I think it would be really difficult because, you know, the it, part of the advantage of speed and why militaries care about it is precisely because of the ability to sort of blow the blow the crap up because that's, you know, ultimately what matters. Like, if you detect something more quickly, that's useful but ultimately you know what matters in military conflict is ability to damage or destroy your adversary's target so sure you could sort of try to leave human control to um an individual and to a human um but then you're sort of losing much of that advantage of speed in in, in a particularly critical way um and doing so maybe difficult and not impossible depending on the size of the swarm we've talked about you know thousand ten thousand uh drones that type of thing um, you know, there might also be able to, uh, ways to sort of algorithmically manage that speed sort of, um, and system, um, like building it within the system, you know, if they're creating, for example, indicators of like, okay, before, if, even if a human can't approve an attack, um, at least sending a message, like having the swarm be like, Hey guys, I'm going to be blowing some stuff up over here. So, you know, humans can sort of review and look at what's actually going on, um, to sort of limit the harm. Um, because, you know, one of the, I guess, positive advantages for swarms is that because even though they have that same brittleness, they also have so many different elements to them. So, you know, if one drone makes a mistake, it's plausible that, you know, a human recognizes, uh oh, we're heading in a bad direction here. Stop, 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 stop. Let's make this, you know, uh, uh, you know, prevent it from actually happening. Um, because even they can't necessarily be as fast as the algorithm, you know, the drones are still going to have to op occupy physical space, right? So if there, a bunch of drones are still flying towards a target, you may be able to hit stop there, even if you can't, you know, um, respond as quickly as you can, like in a really fast moving firefight, that type of thing. Does that mean that the chances of escalation are higher with swarms? I think absolutely. Um, you know, particularly because of sort of from that brittleness, from that speed, from that potential for error, um, you know, what happens if a mistake happens? I mean, you don't even really need all that exquisite systems to make that happen. We saw recently in, you know, the Ukraine conflict where I think it was uh, Russia uh, launched a missile that, you know, went off, veered off course and hit Poland, I believe. And there was quite a bit of discussion about whether that was going to invoke like NATO Article 5 protections and bring the United States and have, you know, a even more massive war going on there. And that's just with a simple missile, right? Um, and so if you have 1,000, 10,000 drones, I think absolutely you have much greater escalation risks um, because, okay, what happens if even just a couple of those drones mess up and they accidentally hit the wrong target? And that target happens to belong to a military that is not currently part of that uh, conflict. Or, you know, even if it is part of the conflict, it may be sort of um, out of scope of where that conflict is that may sort of expand the conflict from, say, like, you know, a minor border dispute, that type of thing, into much more of a full-blown conflict and do so in ways that it, more quickly than anyone sort of realized what happened. So you get sort of the concerns about, like, flash wars, that type of thing, where just a war just really quickly sort of emerges. Um, you know, of course, 
that's somewhat assuming that like these drones are being used like all the time in the battlefield. And that's going to be a big factor on those escalation risks, right? Like if you're only using it in really narrow prescribed settings, when fightings have already um, broken out, there's still that concern there, like, you know, hitting a non-involved uh, tar uh, target, but it's not necessarily like bringing a war from complete nothing, that type of thing. This is in terms of a, a time frame, something that can happen on, on the battlefield. So within minutes, seconds, there's another possibility of escalation, and that is an arms race. Uh, if, mm -hmm. if, if I'm one country and, you know, you are another country, if I'm looking at what you're developing, I'm thinking, well, I need to focus on the defensive aspect of it uh, and, uh, or perhaps the offensive aspect because, you know, I, you know offense uh, is, is, is favored and, and whoever kind of punches first uh, can knock out the other quicker. Is there, it seems that there is a very strong incentive um, to really jump in and for countries to develop these things as quickly as possible. I think so. And I think we're already seeing that um, just in the past three years, um, numerous states have uh, announced new swarming projects. I'm not going to remember them all off the top of my head, but it's like India, China, United States, um, United Kingdom, Spain, South Africa, South Korea, uh, I think Ukraine, Russia. I think France, I'm not 100% certain on that, but I think France did as well. Um, I know there was a couple more that I've forgotten. And like, you know, even folks who like follow drone developments closely, um, have like comment on Twitter, stuff like they can't keep up. And like, I know I can't, like, I'm sure there's some that I haven't seen because um, we've seen this technology spread very, very quickly. And that's because um, like that core technology is really not that complicated. And we talk about just really communication and coordination um, between the drones. So my favorite- yeah, and it's cheap. Um, my favorite example of this is the Perdex uh, swarm. So this was a swarm that uh, the United States launched, uh, showed off in 2016. They launched 113 of these drones, or about yay big, bright orange, um, out of three F-18 uh, fighter craft. And the drones, they moved around the battlefield uh, doing like all sorts of complex formations and spread across and did a bunch of interesting stuff. But what was really interesting about this is that the drones and the swarm itself was actually designed by students. Um, this was actually a project that came out of M uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, where it was, I believe, actually like a class project. I think it was like a couple of classes, like it wasn't just a semester type thing. But the point is, like, this is these are students, right? Mm -hmm. These are perhaps you know the best engineering students in the world, but they're students. Um, this isn't like a multi-billion-dollar Lockheed Martin, you know, secret pro project going like Manhattan project thing that's going on for years with the best minds in the world. No, this, these are students who designed this, um, which I think illustrates like this technology, the base technology is just really not that difficult. Um, now it becomes, of course, more complex when we start scaling, you know, 10,000, 100,000 drones. That's maybe not so much a past project and particularly managing all that complexity. Um, but again, to sort of harp on the issue we've been sort of hitting this whole time is, you know, the, that issue of error, like just because you can make the swarm doesn't mean it's actually operating effectively and isn't, isn't doing necessarily the things that you want. So I think, yeah, absolutely. From like a proliferation arms control uh, or arms race perspective, I think that is absolutely um, a concern as well. Let's uh, get to something that I know is uh, an important subject for you, the possibility of, of swarms being used as weapons of mass destruction. If we're talking here about the, the possibility of proliferation uh, at such a scale, um, where, uh, you know, middle-sized powers, small states even have the possibility then to what can effectively be called a weapon of mass destruction. Is that what we're talking about? I think absolutely. Um, so 
when I look historically at sort of, and I try to think about like, okay, what have we meant by weapons of mass destruction? Um, I look back at like where the term was coined in, I think it was like 1936, 1938, when the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was decrying the weapons of mass destruction, the modern weapons that we're using at that time, I think it was like in the Italian wars in Africa. And I think there was some fighting between Japan and China and that sort of thing. And uh, what he was talking about is just the destructive potential of modern technology. And that sort of, that idea, I think, blended into sort of the arms control um, type arena when we started talking about, like, say, chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, in which they sort of combine two essential properties, uh, the a huge amount of harm that they can create, as well as their indiscriminate nature, where, you know, a bad wind might mess up a chemical weapon, for example. And that's where we sort of get the moral operborum that comes with those weapons and why we want to ban them to sort of go back to the earlier conversation, allow, you know, they're not discriminate, they're not proportional by their very nature. And you couple that with the ability to cause massive amounts of harm, you have a weapon of mass destruction. And I think that that, that separates our traditional weapons of mass destruction from most of our other conventional weapons, even like big bombs are at least theoretically discriminate and can meet those law of war concerns. So if we turn that to swarms, we need to just make uh, see look at those two properties you know how can they handle discrimination proportionality and the ability to cause that harm you know i think we've at this point kind of beaten the horse to death a little bit um that there's huge potential error of swarms and i think there are very real and significant issues with that proportionality that's discrimination principles and then you couple that with the fact that you can basically have any level of harm that you potentially want with a swarm because theoretically they can scale as big as you want so if we say define mass destruction on however we want, say a thousand deaths in a single conflict or something like that. Well, if you have a thousand drones with each with like a grenade or a small bomb, well, yeah, that could definitely cause a thousand harm, uh, deaths in a particular like attack. So, you know, that you have that potential for massive amounts of destruction coupled with the harm there. And similarly, we can see how like that how the weapons might be used in similar ways to previous weapons of mass destruction, sort of for that way to sort of intimidate uh, populations, to create um, potential law as like strategic deterrence. I think, I don't know how effective they would be in that role, um, which makes me slightly more optimistic, but theoretically they could be used that way to sort of threaten states and like, hey, I'm gonna unleash my 10,000 swarm on your city, that type of thing. That's gonna go crazy and destroy a bunch of stuff. Um, so you can imagine how that we use there. You can also imagine how it might be used sort of as weapon of intimidation to, uh, for like a nefarious regime that's trying to tell its pop, control its population to search and engage the targets. And of course, you know, one of the implications of that uh, sort of line of thinking is that we also need to consider the policy vehicles that we've used in the past to address weapons of mass destruction. Okay, what do we do with like international norms? Um, do we need international laws against that? You know, that's a potential strong argument for uh, a ban on autonomous weapons, because if you ban autonomous weapons, that necessarily includes banning autonomous drone swarms as well. Um, that's a larger issue, but, you know, theoretically, that is that is an approach um, that one can take uh, about it. Um, it also means trying to curb the proliferation. Like, OK, what are the tools to do that? I don't know that there are terribly great ones, but at least, you know, it's worth thinking through. And then likewise, it's worth thinking through what are the policy implications of particularly terrible usages like, OK, this future Saddam Hussein type character releases a swarm on his city of people to quell insurgents or whatever. Um, how does the international community respond to that? And if we think about it from like a WMD perspective, that suggests that we may need to have some pretty significant um, aspects, not just even if you don't buy the WMD aspect, simply the fact that we have that brittleness, we have that 
concerned from law of war perspective of um, targeting civilians. Well, what do we do about that? You know, we've seen like with chemical weapons usage, that's been a significant red line to potentially deal with military intervention, uh, diplomatic sanctions, economic sanctions, um, all sorts of involvement in the conflict. You know, is that the appropriate mechanism um, if a drone swarm uh, is used in a horrible way? I mean, I think it's definitely worth considering. And of course, you know, it's going to depend a little bit on the context of where it's used, how it's used and you know, all the politics that go into it. But, you know, looking at those types of mechanisms, I think are absolutely appropriate when it comes to swarms. I think a very good way to illustrate this as we uh, approach uh, our concluding part is uh, an aircraft carrier. For a very long time, an aircraft carrier has been really the, the one of the biggest aspects of manifestation of power. Uh, uh, only the U.S. has a double digit of them, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the very big military powers have one, two, some, some none. Right now, um, you know, a country has developed uh, an aircraft carrier for, for drones out of a simple uh, reused uh, shipping, uh, fishing uh, boat, right? Like it's, it's repurposed it to that, uh, or uh, I think it was carrying cargo. Uh, another that you just reported of, I saw, I, I saw it, you, you shared it where um, the UK is using uh, a fishing boat uh, as a mothership for, for... So, I mean, you can really repurpose old boats uh, for, for uses that previously have been major aspects, very expensive aspects of projecting power. Uh, and, and, and that should be a source for concern, I think. I think absolutely. And actually that tees up a, a broader issue that I find really interesting with swarms is, you know, one of the things I, I've seen and um, I suspect you've probably seen as well, you know, in the GGE discussion, I suspect, I'm sure, um, is that, you know, many of the great military powers have tend to be the ones who've been a little bit more obstructionist and sort of moving forward some of the policies. I'm a little bit sympathetic to some of those concerns personally, but um I think swarms are actually one area where you may be much more likely to actually get great power um, support for some of these um, concerns about limiting autonomous weapon uh, risks. Uh, In my conversations with uh, folks at the U.S. Department of Defense, um, many of them are very, very concerned about uh, swarms and and what that means for their military power. Because, you know, when these military powers, what they, they see not only sort of that destructive potential, but they see that simpleness that you know, this technology is spreading so quickly and that some of these smaller states who may not have major military capability, that they can use swarms to as an asymmetric weapon where they can feel much greater capability. Um, and that's particularly scary, like for the United States, because many of our weapon systems sort of like the aircraft carriers are they're big, they're expensive, they're exquisite. You know, we spend hundred million dollars, billion dollars or whatever, making these systems. And you know, they're really fancy and sophisticated, but if I can blow that system up with a bunch of cheap, crappy drones, um, that's potentially majorly offsetting a lot of American military power. So there are folks who are very, very concerned about that from purely a military standpoint. You know, I'm sure many, some of them are also concerned from like, you know, the ethical concerns as well. Um, but like, I think that aspect of swarming um, and that risk that they pose to great powers may also be an opportunity within these broader discussions on autonomous weapons to actually get some of these great powers maybe not endorsing full-throatedly, you know, a complete ban on autonomous weapons, but uh, they may be more willing to sort of come to the table and negotiate, um, you know, potentially more limited treaties or at least building some international norms and engaging more fully with like non-proliferation type discussions um, globally, which, you know, that could be a good thing. 
I, I would agree with you. I think that it's one of those aspects that can really move the discussion. I mean, the first thing is really to keep the major military powers on the, on the table. I think it, a very dangerous um, development can be if they're not there. You know, And I think that, that this is one of the main arguments for uh, keeping this momentum within the, the, the Geneva format, uh, within the CCW format. We've started along the, the, the GG itself. And again, this addresses just one category of what we're talking about, we, you know, conventional weapons and, you know, within an IHL framework. We haven't talked about even in this conversation about strategic weapons, you know, and that's a completely different uh, kind of consideration. But within that, I think that we've been very agile, very flexible. I think that each time that there has been an issue, you know, definition, we've gone around it, characteristics. We've developed, you know, guiding principles. We've developed a normative and operational framework. We've agreed to develop that as well further. And I think that that gives really a very strong framework of where to go next. At the end, you can put a title uh, on, on the document and, you know, it can be an additional protocol. It can be a new treaty. It can be a general assembly resolution. It can be different things. But the format is there. The elements are, are basically there. And there's a lot of work that has been done. Uh, again, legal weapon reviews and, and um, the, the countries that are the furthest ahead by interacting, they're re revealing, they're communicating where they are. So even if it, for instance, for, with swarms, if there is a danger of, of some developments, there can be a workshop, there can be a side event during those meetings, and they can share that because they know that they don't want an, an adversary to make, you know, it's an interesting thing. You don't want the adversary to make those uh, mistakes because if you are in a situation of battle with them, their mistake can cost you. You can engage in a, in a, in a, in a, in a war, in a flash war, without intending to, to do so. So I think that uh, a lot has been done, still a lot of possibilities to do. And I think that you're right, swarms and other similar things are uh, a way of doing it. Um, I think we've started to do that as well recently in, in really um, dividing it into what is possible to be regulated, what is not yet ripe for regulation, you know, fully autonomous, for instance, it's a it's a loaded term to begin with. But I mean, you know, if we agree, okay, fully autonomous, you know, that's, that's not something where we want to go. What, what that means? Okay, well, let's, let's see where, the, where what that means exactly. But even in that discussion, I think that there's a lot of value. Yeah, I think that absolutely. I um, mean, I think that's definitely somewhere we need to go. Like, this is hardly the debates about autonomous weapons. They're hardly the first debates that, you know, we've had about arms control um, and looking at some of the lessons there. And at least for me, one of the lessons I take, like looking at historical efforts is sort of that importance of sort of risk and separating, okay, what are the things that we're actually really worried about from what are the things that, you know, maybe there aren't very big of a deal. Like we see that within like the chemical weapons convention, for example, where you have different schedules of chemicals, like, okay, these ones are really only used for chemical warfare and like sarin, VX, and we need to worry about these other things like chlorine, like, yeah, they're concerning, but, you know, they're used so often in industry. They're like, maybe it's not a big deal. And I think, you know, using some of those types of approaches that we've found successful and, you know, learning from, you know, the diplomat, diplomatic historians and the folks who work on these issues in all sorts of contexts, I think it'd be really, really useful, you know, because ultimately, you know, what are the things we're really concerned about? Like, it's sort of that risk to, um, it's, uh, to, to civilians and that risk to sort of international humanitarian law and like, Figuring out where those places are, I think, is really critical. Last question, Zach, and, and, and basically where we started off with, and that is how has your own thinking evolved uh, since you first kind of 
faced up to this issue, to your first kind of read or, or whatever it was, how has your thinking and your concern about uh, swarming autonomous weapon systems changed? Uh, are you more concerned? Are you less concerned? So I actually don't think my concerns have changed really all that much. Um, it's more refining the details, getting a better understanding of how these swarms work. So um, I don't, it was actually kind of interesting. So I heard about swarms and got into this completely by happenstance. I was at an IT conference and, you know, there was, I decided to stay late, you know, it kind of looked vaguely interesting. So I just sat and waited and I heard a presentation um, during that conference. It was, they showed like a 60 minute uh, video uh, that was talking about some of the, actually it was the Perdex swarm. Um, and I just, it just sort of blew my mind. As soon as I saw this, it was like, holy crap, that technology is real. Um, and I just sort of, my mind was like, I can just immediately see like, okay, there's so many just crazy possibilities that one can do do uh, with all of this from, you know, building out mass swarms. I don't think I immediately concluded that like, okay, this is a potential weapon, weapon of mass destruction. But, you know, like to me, it was like pretty clear, like there's like so much potential uh, here for the weapon uh, for this concern. Um, so I think, you know, what's sort of evolved for me is sort of getting a better appreciation of like, sort of, as we're talking about like command and control architectures, figuring out, okay, how does this work? How does this not work? And also thinking through some of the, like the limitations of these systems, you know, okay, if we have a 10,000 drone swarm, well, that's great and that's concerning, but also you have to consider sort of all the back end and everything that comes along to that. Like, okay, you have 10,000 drones. How do you get that to the battlefield? How do you spread that in the battlefield? Where do you send those? Like you had to think about like the logistics, the maintenance, um, all the things that go around it. So it's more of just sort of building out my understanding and also some of the limitations. Um, I don't know that my concerns have like gone down, um, but certainly I think it's been a, a refinement of, of those, um, you know, because if you imagine that sort of like logistics tale, those sort of mothership type thing that also potentially becomes a vulnerability in a way that you can deal with it, you know, because you blow up the mothership, you blow up the swarm, which is partially why I think, you know, swarms aren't uh, going to be like sort of the end of humanity or anything like that, or are going to be, you know, the single most decisive force on the battlefield, I think it'll matter and could be quite significant. But, you know, that, I think that doesn't, but at the same time, that doesn't take away, I think, from those very real concerns about sort of escalation, risks of error and that type of thing. I've enjoyed the conversation, Zach. Thank you very much for coming to the Diplomacy Light podcast. Yeah, likewise. And thanks for having me. Diplomacy Light podcast. Light.